1: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
2: From Chicago, this is film spotting. I'm
0: Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. None of this makes any sense.
3: They're all like bad dreams. I don't think so. I know the difference between a a bad dream and real life, okay? We're all afraid of something. Got that right. Hi, Rich. What are you afraid of? Clowns.
2: So, Josh, what scares you? Well, I'm okay with clowns, actually. It's just the murdering sewer-dwelling clowns that bother me. Hmm.
0: Weird phobia. That clip from the new adaptation of Stephen King's It, in which a group of outcast kids do battle with a clown who fits that description. Our review and our top five Stephen King movie scares. That and more. Red Rum. Ahead on film spotting. <laughs> I don't know, Josh, if I fully appreciated or fully remembered just how omnipresent Stephen King was in the 1980s when we were growing up, until I started preparing for this list. You look over the titles. After Carrie in 76, of course, the De Palma film, and The Shining, Stanley Kubrick in 1980, there was a new King adaptation almost every year. Creepshow, 82, Cujo, The Dead Zone, Christine. All in 83, Children of the Corn, Firestarter in 84, and on and on. Of course, we got Stand By Me, The Running Man, Pet Cemetery, Misery, and we can go on and on. That's
2: probably why he always seemed to be in the background. I think we were both a little too young to at least be appropriately engaging with some of these titles. Sure. We still did. I did. I know that you did. But he seemed to be this specter that the older kids were really into. And sure. I got tastes of here and there, like I said, Far too young. Spectre,
0: probably an appropriate word. Did you ever read any of the King books? So, of the these only films?
2: one I read, and it wasn't until high school. So, way, you know, not way, but a good number of years after this phase was it. Massive, right? I remember it being a real... Yeah. I I was not a big horror reader. I think at the time, in the 80s at this point, I was really into Tolkien. So I was reading other fantasy, Mm. some sci-fi stuff. But I knew kids in my class who were huge King fans, and one of them did convince me to read it. So I did that. That was was enough for me. It it wasn't that it scared me so much. It just wasn't... I didn't want to put that sort of time commitment... Into reading King, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, well, for me, it was the opposite. It was probably the horror factor, because why would I want to read the books and get terrified when I'd already seen the movies and been terrified and was trying to block them out of my memory? We'll get to some of those traumas as we get to our top five later in the show with the release of It. We are going to pay tribute to Stephen King with our top five King movie scares. We're also going to play Massacre Theater and going to share another golden brick nominee but first even
2: though it meant staying out after dark and going home alone late at night adam and i stuck around after the press screening of it to bring you this review
3: dairy's ah! not like any town i've ever been in before people die or disappear six times the national average and that's just grown-ups kids are worse Way, way worse. We all float down here. I saw something. There was this... A clown.
0: Yeah, I saw him too.
3: Look. It's all connected by the sewers. That's where it lives. (gasps)
2: It's not quite the witching hour, Adam, but that's approaching as we have just gotten out of the press screening for it. So let's dive in before they turn the lights off here at WBEZ, a theatrical version of the Stephen King novel that was previously adapted into a TV miniseries in 1990. It is set in Derry, Maine in the late 1980s, a small town suffering a rash of child disappearances. Thanks to a series of terrifying visions they've been suffering, all of which involve the world's creepiest clown, that's creepiest with a K K—atom, a bunch of misfit kids begin to unravel this mystery. It, directed by Andy Muschietti of the Jessica Chastain horror picture Mama and starring Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise the Clown, is a jam-packed fright fest. There's no shortage of ghastliness, ghouls, and gore. But is it scary? And by that I mean did it tap into something deeply disturbing and relatable for you, Adam, as I'd argue happens with the best horror.
0: Hmm. Yeah, this is more than a still processing review. This might be a still recovering review as well. And we will still say a yes. Yeah. Mostly a yes. Okay. And I wonder if I'm reading between the lines, you have maybe the same misgiving about this film that I do that relates to those scares. But we'll talk about this certainly with our top five here in a little bit, how personal fear is. If we were to list the top five things that terrified us, and let's say not movie related, even though I think most of them are probably movie related, that was planted there by these films, and I've never been able to quite escape them. There's probably some crossover, and there's some things that you're scared of that I'm not at all scared of, and vice versa. There are things unique to us individually, but we can all relate to being afraid, to simply being afraid. And so I wonder if that's one of the elements. I've seen a few things here and there that this is one of those books that Stephen King fans in particular really seem to adore. And I wonder if it's because beyond maybe just the writing and something about the story and maybe a universal fear of clowns, it's because of that universal fear that the book and the movie clearly tap into it's at the heart of everything it drives the whole story it's really what the clown here is feeding off of the fear of these kids and certainly there are some frights right away I'd say within the first five minutes as we are introduced to kind of who's going to be our main character his name is Bill played by Jaden Lieberer and it's a rainy day and his brother Georgie takes the boat they've made and goes out to have it float along the water the puddles and go down the street and he chases it and then we never see or hear from Georgie again the scene where he confronts Pennywise at the beginning is really really creepy and so we have that but then within the first 10 or 15 minutes we realize that this movie isn't just going to present us with these sort of imagined or let's say supernatural kind of terrors but natural ones, too, these everyday kind of fears that these kids experience. It's a war zone for them, these outsiders, these losers at home. And then even when they're just out riding their bikes, they have to always be afraid before even the killer clown comes on the scene. They have to be afraid that they might get caught alone by these bullies. So we have the real fears, and we also have these imagined ones or potentially imagined ones. In terms of me personally reacting to it, there were many scenes, especially in the first half of the film, where... I got I got the shivers watching it. And I'm sitting in a packed theater. I'm sitting right next to you and a lot of other people, and yet it did give me that reaction, that visceral reaction to some of those frights on screen. I do think that maybe Muschetti, the director, who I think there are a lot of nice little touches here in his direction, I do wonder if it's a little bit too relentless with the scares. There is a point in this film where I realize that Despite the fact that the jumps and the shrieks of terror and the appearances of the clown and other grotesque things weren't decreasing, the number of scares were decreasing. Mm. I think that I felt a little bit overwhelmed by it. And you could maybe argue that our experience, if that is one that others were having with the film, is supposed to, in a way, mirror the experience of the kids who, as a pack, eventually kind of realize that they can they can fight back a little bit if they – are less afraid and they have more courage, and so they're not getting as scared. But the fact is, the frequency of those those scares is still there, and yet they were less effective for me. What about you?
2: Yeah, and I, I think they are. I like that reading. That's that's very generous because I yes, think they're still I'm
0: supposed to be
2: scary. For Absolutely, us in the audience, and it does grind you down. my My impression coming out is, I felt like I went through this really terrifying haunted house. And then I went through it again, and then I went through it again, and I probably went through the thing 15 times before right. the movie was over. But I did like it, and mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why it has to do with what you were talking about in terms of the idea of fear. If that alone is what the movie was about, and I think on its surface level, that's what it's interested in. That's its mm-hmm. theme. It speaks to it directly. You talked about how it addresses it with the clown weakening once they face their fears. They literally face their fears, right? Yeah. So that's there. And, you know, handled – Fairly well. I think Muscatti does have, as you said, some nice touches here and there, but maybe would not justify this lengthy running time and the repetitiveness. What did jump out at me, and this is maybe a sub-fear of the movie that I think it is interested in but doesn't push to the forefront Mm -hmm. and worked on me a little bit better, is that this is also partly about childhood fear of adults. Sure. And you touched on it, yep. the fact that the home lives for many of these kids in some cases is blatantly abusive, mm-hmm. in other cases is indifferent. And so almost all of these kids are suspicious of adults or abused by adults. Mm-hmm. I, can you think of a grown-up in this movie who isn't at the most benign grotesque and, you know, again, at the uh-huh. at the worst end, like, horribly abusive. I think you maybe, can argue maybe the librarian. May, well, even she is, you know, and there's a great touch. Talking oh, I about, know. Talking about the that's little... going to be
0: the biggest takeaway for me from this movie. <laughs> you know, I was wait. wondering if you saw it, too. Yeah. In the background, in the when background, he's the, the, the old table. lady.
2: And see, this is where Muschetti <laughs> has some oh, definite yep. skill in unsettling you without I noticed. doing just a jump scare. Mm-hmm. So one of these kids, uh, one of the actors I liked really good. Yeah, Jeremy Ray Taylor as Ben, new kid to town. So he's in the library by himself researching the town's history. I'm getting sidetracked here, but this is such a great shot. Yeah. And way in the background as he sits at the library table is a, just a woman. I'm not even sure if she is a librarian or another patron. She looks like she – yeah, you're right. She's either looking at books or putting away books. And as we cut between Ben and the things he's reading, every time her figure blurring the background is a little closer until it's suddenly facing and It's like him. she's looking at the yeah, camera. It's so good. It's, it's yeah. maybe one of my favorite moments. But For sure. Going back to this idea of adults being what is really scary here, mm-hmm. I do like how this also redeems a little bit one of the weaknesses which are the bullies M- Movies have a terrible time with bullies. I mean they're complete just with bullies <laughs> they're always overdone, way overdone, right? But here what I liked. Is that these younger kids see these bullies, these older kids as traitors in a way because they 're a step away from adulthood, mm. and in being that close to this other phase of life that they don't trust, it somewhat justifies their behavior so I just think that that did for me add a level of you know i thankfully, I did not have terrible experiences with adults as a kid, right. but you can remember as a kid being. A little unsure around certain adults and certainly around adults you don't know well. And so I do think that taps into that and inflames that in a way that's pretty potent. And think about near the end when things start to get crazy. There are back-to-back scenes of kids killing abusive parents. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was deeply disturbing, yes, to watch but also added a more interesting thematic layer than just another creepy thing that this clown is going to pull out of his hat.
0: Yeah, no, I'm with you completely there. I think it is potent. And I certainly noted that we do scarcely even see any adults in this film. And the ones we do see are either completely peripheral, like the librarian who really does seem to me pretty benign not the one who shows up in the back of the frame who knows what that's all about but the one who does seem to be helping the boy the new kid but even the pharmacist it turns oh, out, yeah. is creepy and, and is someone who might just be a predator mm-hmm. in his own right. And definitely, it occurred to me watching all these scenes as they go through their town, their little seemingly idyllic town, and we see the movie theater there and the drugstore and the movie theater, for the record, called The Capitol, which I used to work at The Capitol and I used to change the marquee <laughs> with the movie titles on it that looked just like the, that, the yeah. exact same type of lettering. We don't see any adults walking around. They're not anywhere. It's it's really kind of this this world, almost like Stand By Me in a way, where, again, we hardly see him after the beginning of the film. Everything is from the kid's perspective. Mm -hmm. And you're right. They are constantly in a state of terror. So, as I said, the adults we do see when we see them are either completely peripheral in a way that they barely even register or they are scarier than Pennywise, Mm -hmm. right? Or as I said, they're, they're absent completely here. So I think that is really effective. And maybe this is something I was tapping into a little bit. I certainly would love to have more time to think this through, but having come off just seeing close encounters of the third kind over the weekend, the 40th anniversary, one of the things that I definitely never tapped into before was the way spielberg explores to an extent denial terry gar's character roy's wife when he comes home when he's had this experience and he's relaying it to her and the next day he's still obsessed with it all she keeps saying is nope this never happened this just never happened forget about it and It takes on something larger. Of course, we relate to her. We understand why she might feel that way, but it takes on something larger when Roy has completely lost it and he's in the living room building Mm -hmm. a replica of this thing and Spielberg cuts to, we'd already seen all the neighbors sort of amassing outside watching them. And then... He cuts at one point to Roy looking out the window and a guy mowing his lawn. And it's as if with that shot spiel where he's just kind of saying, you know what? If you could be oblivious like that guy, if you could be someone who's just focused on the perfectly manicured lawn out here in this little town or suburbia, whatever, then, well, you'd be happier than than Roy is, the, the lunatic in his living room. And this comes up in this movie, too, where you get the sense... That everyone in this town, the people we don't even see, they must be living in the highest form of denial, right? Like they've they've accepted that these terrible tragedies befall this town. People are disappearing left and right. And all they do about it is they put new posters up and they then forget about the one who went away and put the new poster up. And so everyone's just choosing to move on and move on and move on. And I wonder if that's almost a sense of this this fear of adulthood and the idea that as kids everything feels so important to you and mm-hmm. and powerful to you immediate. and and yeah, and immediate and you feel like you would never lose sight of those things that really matter to you and as you get older, you're able to you're able to get distracted, to choose to get distracted, to just look the other way rather than actually Look at the things that are really terrifying. So my memory of
2: reading it, which would have been in high school, is very faint. But I feel like that was more pronounced or a larger theme in the book, that there was almost almost a conspiracy going on in this town because it is alluded to here and there yeah. in the movie. The posters is yep. maybe the best moment because there's a visual detail to that. But I feel like it's not – if it had maybe explored that further, that might have been a part strength. two. Chapter yeah, two, know, Josh, yeah, is where yeah, that's uh, going to come uh, out. Yeah, at the very end we see that this is chapter one. So yeah. Close Encounters is an interesting film to bring up because I think what the movie runs into – is the exact thing that Spielberg is a master at, which is pacing. Yeah. Uh, The images Muschetti has downright, and I I want to get to some more of the Mm -hmm. great images in this film, but it does become a matter of pacing, not only of the space between the scare scenes, Mm -hmm. there's not much breathing in this film, but really some of the pacing within those scare scenes. There is a lot of slow approaching of a terrible thing. yes, And we do that over and over to the point where, I mean, it's a horror cliche. Don't go in that room, right? There is way too much of that here. Not only from some of these characters who maybe we can understand why they're mesmerized, Mm -hmm. but really from characters like Bill, the leader, who has a better understanding of what's going on here, goes against his own advice repeatedly. Yeah. And and what that does is it's not just nitpicking because it does slow down. Pacing is as crucial to a scare as the scare itself, as the image you find, as the payoff, mm-hmm. that, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, totally. And, and here we we lose it. That's why the haunted house uh, metaphor came to mind, because I felt like we spent a lot of time walking up to the next big fright. And it was often something ghoulishly inventive. Mm-hmm. But there's such a slowdown to get to that. And, and I don't know that frenetic – would have been the answer to amp this movie up you know and just speed up things no. but what they have decided to go with doesn't quite work in terms of the the editing and pacing overall
0: I agree with you and yet I think some of the nicer touches in this film go back to the moments where Muschetti does show real patience. And I think we see that in that opening yeah, scene the opening's great. where he's, he's setting, the, setting the whole story up and he allows for that dread to really build and build. But I like even the moments, and this is my favorite one, but there are other examples, the moment where Bev, the only girl in this group who, and the movie definitely gets one thing right, she's so much more mature than all the other boys, yeah, despite right. the fact that she's the same age as them you know and of course that would be yeah so that that makes sense physically emotionally everything she's more mature than them and she has introduced herself to the new kid who has his book his yearbook and she says i'll sign it for you and turns to the last page and muschetti holds on her as she looks at the page and sees that it's blank Mm -hmm. and that's not really a surprise. I don't think that her reaction, she, she expresses something in that moment that suggests more like she realizes that she has the ability to write something down that, that is momentous mm-hmm. or somehow really important, that she's, she's she breaking new the ground. Moment. here. Yeah, yeah. Something about it is that she's the first one and she's going to leave a mark there. And I really love moments like that. Something did just occur to me while you were talking, going back to the idea of this fear of growing up. If you think in particular about Bill and Bev, they seem to have a connection, too. Fair to say that the other kids don't necessarily have with each other or with her. And one of the things they share, without cataloging each one of their unique individual fears, one thing they share, you could argue, is that Bev, we do understand very early on what her fear is. And it has to do with a sort of sexual awakening, a maturity. Actually, just the idea of her... Becoming a woman is what's terrifying her with Bill. What may be terrifying him is the idea that he could turn into his father. He could turn into his father and his mother and turn their backs on their son. He doesn't want to ever forget that that he had this brother and that he loves Georgie and hold out that hope and The fear is if I become like my parents, that I will become so cold and dead inside and I will I will lose. I will just choose to deny that that. Almost that he ever existed. Yeah, I was almost going to say
2: that Bill's parents were one of the better models uh, that we see of adults here. But but you're right. From mm-hmm. Bill's vantage point, they have exactly. completely denied what happened to his younger brother. Uh, Beverly has. You're right. There's the scene in the drugstore that I think is well handled. That she has that fear, but also a much more literal and an oppressive well, sure. fear. Um, that's kind of bearing down on her as well. Without a doubt. I think the actress playing Beverly, Sophia Lillis, is really strong. And those scenes, you mentioned the first one, between her and Ben. We mentioned him. He's the kid in the library, played by Jeremy Ray Taylor. I just like the flirting that goes on between them. I do too. That is just really unique Mm -hmm. in a way that she's not being patronizing to him. No, But she is returning his affection in a yeah. way and the way he receives that and it, it kind of changes his world but he's not like the deer in the headlights sure. corny kid yep. and a lot of this is it's hard to describe because it's just in the performances it's mm-hmm. the way they hold those scenes and, and have their moments together I did think that that was a strong element of the movie In one that you know last week when we talked about E.T. a little bit I mentioned how Spielberg is so good as creating this sense of family life mm-hmm. that's lived in I don't think it has that all the time, mm-hmm. but in these scenes between these two actors, you get a sense of that, that this is this is what childhood could be like. It yeah.
0: felt genuine there. Yeah, it really does. And one of the things that hit me appropriately, maybe while I was scribbling down my last notes and trying to transfer them here to the computer to prepare for this review, was the way writing factors into this movie. This is another one of those threads that I would explore if I had more time and we hadn't just come from the movie. If you go back to the very beginning, we saw it. I don't know if this is going to happen before every screening of it. Maybe it will. Stephen King appears on screen and says, hey, I really like what they've done with the movie. And... This is one of my favorite stories. It's one of the most personal. And so it does get you thinking a little bit. Well, why is it personal to King? And you could speculate. Maybe it has to do with him growing up in a town like this. Maybe he was a bit of an outsider like this. Maybe he was always afraid, whatever it is. But one of the other things is he, he becomes a writer. And the postcard is a huge factor mm-hmm. here. The nice touch. yearbook, as we touched on. And then this idea of signing a cast comes up. And so I I don't know if there are more. I feel like there were a few more of those that popped up in the film. And I don't know really what that says. But that element is certainly there in the movie. I like the signing of the cast scene
2: because that's an example of depicting bullying done right yeah you know this is uh, another one of the friends played by jack dylan grazer the character's name is eddie and at this point he's got a cast on his arm he goes to the pharmacy where the pharmacist's daughter has already been established she's bullied beverly at school mm-hmm. she leans over and says oh no one signed your cast and starts to sign it and he lets her and and she scribbles loser on it that's how bullying more often works, right? This this sort of lure you in and then do something insidious. Whereas these other teen boy bullies who we get are just way too big, you know, for for me. They're, they're the way movies always go, where it's like there's a shot of a cop watching them, right, at one point, and kind of like because they see him watching they. Back off, yeah. And usually, that's how bullies are depicted. Like they would be taken immediately to jail if anyone saw what's happening. Sure. Even though it's happening well, in, the in of the any
0: other yard. town with any other relationship there, as right. we there discover is, later, there is a relationship. Yeah, to I, that. I, I don't disagree with you, and yet at the same time, there's something about the bullying being so heightened and so extreme here. Like I don't know if you're talking about just the performances themselves or the nature of the bullying, because clearly. King made a decision, I assume, and the director here makes a decision to show us above and beyond the normal bullying. There are usually cases in films like this where we see the bullies, they contemplate for a second doing something really drastic to someone after just the normal kind of hitting and teasing. No, they go to just ridiculous lengths to hurt, like almost killing these kids. And, And something about that in the context of this town and this sort of evil bubbling up underneath them all makes sense to me
2: yeah i think it for me it is more in the performances and and maybe the framing of those sequences themselves all right let me give a couple more images because i do think okay. that's a strength of the film one of these is maybe not muschetti so much as the effects or makeup work and it's scarsgard his look yeah. as pennywise and i don't know if they did this with tim curry in the tv version i never actually saw that but the way his eyes are always moving out of sync Mm -hmm. and sometimes they do so drastically but that's not as creepy what's creepy is when you're looking at them in like three seconds in you you think wait a minute that eye's a little going (laughs) this way and then the other one and then they they move and there's just something indicating you know something's going to go bad pretty soon by that little detail so that that's nice but Mm -hmm. i also like those hands coming out of the door that this is one of the visions Mm -hmm. that one of the kids has. Uh, There's a fire inside and these hands like try to pry the door open the victims. Uh, There is the one of the painting that comes to life. And before that happens, I don't know if I've ever seen this in a movie. Maybe you have, or or listeners can see or listeners can point something out, Mm -hmm. but this kid goes to straighten the painting on the wall. That's a little tilted and Muschetti flips it. So we see the painting's point of view and the camera moves right. to actually straighten.
0: Yeah, actually. <laughs> Have that, you seen that yeah, before? Yeah, that was, that was one of the things I was trying to make sense of in my notes, that, that idea of drawing attention to that and that little shift with the point of view yes. from the point of view of the frame is, 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 a, the is a wonderful touch. Yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. And for me, mm-hmm. this gets
2: back to being personal, the worst moment is when Bev is attacked by all of the hair. In the drain. That's been stuck down her bathroom drain. <laughs> Valid. I, we, I have two daughters. I live in a house with three women. So our drains, you know, they brush their hair. Sometimes I've got to take care of that. And I don't, barely survive it. Don't look it. down the drain, Josh. I am never doing that again.
0: Yeah. No, I, I'm glad you clarified one thing because i want to clarify it further certainly as you watch this movie there's no doubt that what bev as a character is afraid of truly is something way more real and horrifying than the fear of something psychological of becoming a woman but it's tied it's tied directly oh, yeah, to that sure. that fear. And the director very clearly links it here yeah. in terms of the scene well, where it's tied for the her, scene you're thinking of. Yeah. And it's tied for her abuser. So right. that is true as yeah. well. So it's all there. And she's certainly struggling with that. Now, I have on good authority that our friends at The Next Picture Show and the good authority is I was sitting next to them at the screening as mm-hmm. well. They told me that they are doing for their next set of episodes, Stand By Me and this film, It. And I understood the connection when they were telling this to me before the film. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I know it's about kids and summer, and of course there's that connection, but I'm not sure that I really realized just how linked in some ways, the films really are, especially by the end of the movie. The endings feel very, without, that's not giving anything away. I'll say they just feel similar. It's Mm -hmm. not that necessarily the same things are happening on screen, but they have a similar wistfulness about them that did really connect with me. I think those will probably be a really good set of episodes. And I want to ask you, Josh, whether or not you felt, at the end of the film, when we do discover, and I'm sure lots of people going in were aware of this, that it's two parts that we're going to get at least a sequel to this and whether or not that bothered you or whether or not you think they pulled it off. Because I feel like they managed to walk the line in giving us a story that because of the nature of the story itself, the, the plot elements, which we alluded to earlier are mostly alluded to here. I think they're going to come more to the fore in the next chapter. Those give this particular story a sense of closure but we also recognize that there's definitely more to come. And so the key for me, I guess, when recommending this film to people is I want to see the second film.
2: Yeah, for me, it was like a feeling and not knowing that that was going to happen either. Oh, business as usual. Sure. This is how movies are. And I, I can't sure, say that but it I'm not isn't,
0: isn't it effective well, within the context of this story and these characters? There's closure here. Yeah.
2: Okay, so this story
0: has closure. So I mean, I'm, all the I'm themes we talked about are wrapped up there. This yeah. whole idea of... Unless, of adulthood and
2: if you're right, that one of the reasons they didn't fully take advantage of this, not conspiracy, but the denial is, mm-hmm. is the way you describe it. If they didn't fully take advantage of exploring that is to save it for another installment. See, then I think we're kind of getting into Marvel territory where, OK, yeah. let's hint at something that we'll use later that serves the later film rather than the Yeah, one. I
0: definitely got the sense and – you suggested maybe the length of the film is a little bit too much they cut out i think probably a lot that had to do with that ben character i feel like at some point in the movie he kind of disappears he's been a catalyst for a lot of the action he's been at the center of a lot of the action and then all of a sudden it it takes a turn where he's no longer a main player at all and i get the feeling that it's not just the filmmakers deciding we're shifting the focus it's just that they probably realized that they could cut some of those elements and they wouldn't be crucial to the plot.
2: Well, and how about the character of Mike played by Chosen Jacobs? This is a kid who's homeschooled. He lives outside of town mm-hmm. on a farm. He's given two significant scenes early on and then it's gone for, it feels like, 45 minutes yeah. until he, he regroups with them. So you can, you can tell this is dealing with, you know, large, maybe unwieldy material. Sure. And you feel a little bit of that.
0: Yeah. It is out Right now, in wide release, if you are brave enough to go see it and agree or disagree with our takes, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Quick tangent here, but related to new movies coming out. Stronger, the new movie that is based on real events surrounding the Boston Marathon bombing. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal. That opens September 18th. Here in Chicago, and we have free passes of that movie to give away. So, as always, we encourage you to visit filmspotting.net slash events if you are in the area and want to occasionally have the opportunity to win free movie passes and to see movies often before they actually open. So, a word of warning before we get to Massacre Theater. There won't be screaming like last week, but there
2: will be singing. Is that what we're calling it? You know what? It actually kind of sounds like screaming, now that <laughs> Yeah. I think about it. After that, even more terror as we get to our top five Stephen King scares. Stay with
1: us.
0: about being on television? Those pills you take are gonna kill you before you ever get on, for Christ's sake.
1: Big deal?
3: You drove up in a cab? Did you see who had the best seat? I'm somebody now, Harry. Everybody likes me
0: just quit taking those pills ellen burston we'll get to our stephen king movie scares top five in just a bit but first that is ellen burston so great in requiem for a dream with jared leto in that darren aronofsky film his new one lowercase m mother exclamation point i've got a new one for you josh let's hear it mother now you're still asking her a question no. why are you always asking okay. Mother questions i'm gonna <laughs> well do we have time can i get on the couch No. (laughs) We will work on the definitive pronunciation of that title. We could always go with Michael Phillips. Ma! Yeah, he gave us like the vaudeville version. (laughs) (laughs) Mother is Aronofsky's seventh feature. And I just caught up with Noah from 2014. I was off the week that that movie came out. You and Michael talked about it on the show. And to say I had a revelation a la Noah while watching the film would be way too strong a word. But... Watching the film did crystallize for me something running throughout all of Aronofsky's films that I'm sure everybody else in the world had caught on to long ago, but for me it crystallized something that it took may help me. It took Noah. It did to clarify. actually, okay. but of I'm course, glad you watched. It. That's probably because I just haven't watched any Aronofsky films recently. So watching this one did help me a little bit and in fact may kind of dictate how I approach the top 5 when we get to that after we review Mother we are going to do our top five. Startled me there, Aronofsky scenes, and who knows, one from Noah just might come up. I am a much bigger fan of that film than you, based on your letterboxed review. Anyway,
2: did not work for me. I really wanted it to, and I think it's far more theologically interesting than maybe yeah. I expected. I appreciate that. But how that. it handles those themes, it, it, yeah. I mean, without getting to it, for me, it was a case of. An auteur trying to make a blockbuster, and depending on how much you can mine of his individual, and it sounds like you mined a lot, the more you're going to appreciate it. For me, I just wanted more
0: Aronofsky and didn't quite get Mm. it. Well, I think that going into this, his seventh film, he's six for six. He has not made a bad film yet, and we look forward to your thoughts on Aronofsky. Maybe you can share your favorite scene for that top five. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can leave us a voicemail, 312 264 You can also email us an MP3 file. We just might include it in the top five. Our current film spotting poll is also... Aronofsky related. We're simply asking what you think his best film is. And not really surprising for once, Josh, I got a poll question right. It's the first time in like seven years that I'm correctly predicting how a poll would come out. But it is neck and neck for second place. So your vote does matter. And every film has at least one vote. I'm proud of you, Noah. That's your vote, though. <laughs> no, it was not my vote, but I'm, I'm excited that it got a few. So we will get to those results as well on next week's show. There is no new marathon review this week, so you've got a little bit of time to get caught up. Yes, and we suggest you do that, especially we got off to a great start with Extraordinary
2: Stories and followed that up with Castro, mm-hmm. made it to Lucretia Martel's La Cienega, and we're going to do another Martel next. So a little break here between the Martel films coming up next is The Headless Woman. That's her picture from 2008. Yeah,
0: for that full marathon lineup and all the viewing options, just go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. We do hope that some more of you will jump on board and follow along. And we encourage your feedback. Again, the email feedback at filmspotting.net. Our partner for this marathon is Mubi cult classic independent films from around the world everyday movies experts introduce you to a film they love and you have a whole month to watch it so there will always be 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy listeners of film spotting can
2: try movie
0: free for a month just go to
2: movie.com that's m u b i.com/filmspotting to redeem now. Mubi is also in the middle of a new Argentine series. Right now they're showing After 12 from 2014, described as a defiantly unsentimental coming-of-age story. It comes from director Martin Shanley. Also at Mubi, not part of that series, but other offerings include 13 Zamedi from 2005, a cult thriller that won the World Cinema Grand Prize at Sundance, and then The Crime of Monsieur Lang. From 1936, this is the concluding title in Mubi's Jean Renoir Retrospective. It's a politically
0: provocative comedy thriller romance set at a publishing firm whose oppressive boss suddenly disappears. Sounds intriguing. We certainly need to do our own Jean Renoir Retrospective here on the show. We may get to that at some point in a future marathon. Again, our link is filmspotting.net slash marathons, and you can go to movie.com slash filmspotting to start your 30-day free trial. I have a quick correction, Josh that came in in response to our sacred cow discussion of Blade Runner okay. last week with Michael Phillips we got an email from Primo Duke LA who got his dander up a little bit because we were we were nitpicking one of his beloved films it seems and he did have a very valid point remember when i was talking about how the relationship everything kind of about the relationship with the Sean Young character and the Harrison Ford character, Deckard, in Blade Runner didn't work for me quite as well as I remembered it working. And I pointed out how even in the scene with Leon in the street where Leon's attacking Deckard and then Rachel shoots Leon, it seemed completely jumbled. It didn't even make any sense how she got the gun in her hands and why she was carrying a gun. Primo points out that when replicant Leon tracks down Deckard after he has retired Zora, Leon bats the weapon out of Deckard's hand and goes about giving him a righteous beatdown. Just when he's about to kill Deckard, Leon is shot in the head by Rachel. She didn't just pull a gun out of nowhere. She retrieved it from the street after Deckard was disarmed. So sometimes when something makes no sense in a movie, the filmmakers screwed up. But more often than not, it's probably the viewer's fault. And in this case, I just missed that. Now, I did throw it in and watch that scene again last night. Mm-hmm. Almost two minutes passes between the time the gun is knocked out of his hand by Leon and she picks it up. And we don't see her ever pick it up. So two minutes later, she just has a gun in her hand. And no, I didn't immediately go, oh, that's Deckard's sure. gun. So it's it's a little bit jarring, but probably I feel like even her appearance in
2: the scene comes a little bit out of nowhere. I mean, she could be there. It doesn't make I mean, it makes a little bit of sense. Right. But she
0: just wasn't packing heat. She did pick up that gun off the street. Thank you, Primo, for that correction. We get now to some fun, some massacre theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Josh and I massacred this scene. Ricky, you can walk.
3: What'd you just say? He's telling you the truth, man. It's all in your head. You... Sick sons of bitches. I mean, you walk in that door on your two legs, all fat and cocky, and looking at me in my chair, and you tell me it's all in my head? I hope that both of you have sons, handsome, beautiful,
1: articulate sons who are talented and star athletes, and and they have their legs taken away. I mean, I pray you know that pain and that hurt. Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Don't you put that on us. You are not paralyzed! I am so paralyzed! No, He's no, no! Rough on him now. No, he needs to know. Okay. He's always crying. Tough love it is, tough love. Wake up, idiot! You want to know what I am? You want to see what my life is? Don't huh? do not do
3: it. Do no, you want to see what's going on here? Don't you stick that knife in your leg.
2: <laughs> That's Will Ferrell's Ricky Bobby, who can walk with John C. Riley's Cal Naughton Jr. Don't you do it. And Michael Clark Duncan, yes, you just heard him, as Lucius Washington in Talladega The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, written by Farrell and Adam McKay. McKay also directed. So that massacre was part of a show that also included our review of Steven Soderbergh's new one, Logan Lucky, along with our fall movie preview. A ton of responses yeah. to this, Adam. We almost should have tried to narrow it down by making them guess what prop we used for the stabbing sounds. Good point. That, that might have made it a little more
0: difficult. Are you going to betray your secrets here oh, on no, air? No, no, you'll never tell. I'm, I'm a magician, Adam. Yeah. Oh, you sure are. We did get a lot of entries. The most we've had in a very long time, though it is not in the top 10 all time. And there were a lot of comments along the lines of best massacre theater ever. So we did something right. I suppose, Josh, by doing something so very, very wrong. We stabbed ourselves. That scene. <laughs> Amy Sullivan in Germantown, Maryland says, of course you had to do Ricky Bobby, like Logan Lucky, a collection of oddball accents involving a southern speedway in a movie I'm not sure I want to see, but will probably provide me with a few really good laughs. They're practically the same movie, judging only by the trailers. I have learned from experience never to drink any type of beverage when listening to Mascara Theater, and this week did not disappoint. Josh follows my rule as a theater director, don't be afraid." of your choices. Be bold.
1: You want to see what my life is?
0: Don't do it.
1: You want to see what's going on here?
0: Don't you stick that knife in your leg. Ah! (laughs) <laughs> you were bold indeed, Josh. I'm glad I have professional backing. Yeah. Yeah. You're sanctioned. You're approved by Amy Sullivan. We also heard from Trevor Brown, who said, first off, I want you to know your massacre theater from episode 646 was one of the best ever. There you go. The power emotion range was most impressive. I could really feel the anger and pain in your voices. Also, I think you blew out a speaker in my car. You might Sorry. have, Josh.
2: Sorry, Trevor. Send me the bill. Isaac Rosso Klakovich from Chapel Hill, North Carolina wrote in, both performances were some of y'all's best in months, with your loud and bombastic performances being so entertaining that I had to start watching the movie as soon as I got back home. That is good to
0: hear. And he's in Chapel Hill, so he can drop the y'all. That's true. And it's perfectly appropriate, Josh. Hussein in Toronto, Canada, says, Adam, I don't know if you realize this, but Michael Clark Duncan was in that scene. And if you were trying to imitate the late great's voice, then I must sadly inform you that it was not up to par. Well... That's that's probably true. I don't know that I can get as low as Michael Clark Duncan. Josh, however, elicited quite a response from the gentleman sitting next to me on the bus when I listened to the episode. He asked me what I was listening to, and I caught him up on the practice of masquer Theater, to which he replied, from the way you described them to me, I thought they were serious film critics. <laughs> it was a joke, of course, but that whole exchange brightened up my day and gave me a story to tell for the podcast. Massacre Theater, perhaps not our best advertising tool. Maybe not. But we're sticking with it. And Ken Schwartz did ask us, was this a not-so-thinly-veiled cry for help? Yes. (laughs) Ken, they all are. (laughs) He's a longtime listener who says, concern for you both in Nova Scotia, Canada. Now, tons of great tie-ins. Our listeners always blow us away with the connections they come up with, some that we actually did conceive the vast majority of them we didn't remotely consider. Let's start with Mike Cahodes from Gilbert's, Illinois.
2: If there wasn't a massacre theater between Cars and Hot Fuzz, I honestly don't remember, then it's three massacre theaters in a row where cars are somehow involved because the scene from Hot Fuzz took place at a speeding poll. That's true.
0: Now, that is certainly not by design. Unless no. Sam Sam just has a fixation and an obsession with cars that we're not it aware of. Be. It's just coming out now. Maybe this is his thinly veiled cry for help. Luke Cooper Martin says the connection to both Cars and Logan Lucky seems to be a worker gets an injury that prevents them from doing their work and has to make changes because of it. Uh Aha. Okay. Justin Comiskey, who's from
2: Los Angeles, said the obvious tie-in is that Talladega Nights Ricky Bobby yells out, help me, Tom Cruise, (laughs) while he thinks he's on fire. Tom Cruise was married to Katie Holmes at the
0: time. Who was in Logan? Lucky. This is getting deep. Keith Allison. Adam brought up how he had an unanswered question about what movie could help capture our post-Trump climate. Meanwhile, Adam McKay is ready to comment on the last Republican administration pre-Trump thanks to his Dick Cheney biopic starring Christian Bale. First I heard of that. Is this (laughs) happening? Like, I included this comment just because I had to get this on the record. There's a Dick Cheney biopic being made by Adam McKay and Christian Bale. He's playing Cheney? I don't think Keith would lie to us. Okay. Nick
2: Colucci from Buffalo, New York. Another connection I found through some expert IMDb research is that both Talladega Knights and Logan Lucky received release dates of September 8th in their respective years of release in the country of Estonia. <laughs> both movies also feature
0: former NASCAR driver Daryl Waltrip playing himself. Playing himself. Good stuff, Nick, and everyone else who responded to that massacre theater. I don't know if we can be up to the task with this week's scene. We'll try that out here in a moment. First, we do have to announce this week's winner, and we have more than one winner, Josh, because we do have that Megan Levy Blu-ray DVD combo pack to give away. This film starring Kate Mara just came out. On DVD September 5th, 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, so obviously very generally good reviews for this movie. The true life story of a young Marine corporal whose unique discipline and bond with a military combat dog saved many lives during her deployment in Iraq. We have five of those to give away. So four winners are going to get that Blu-ray DVD combo pack, and one is going to get the combo pack and and a film spotting t shirt. That's a grand prize. It is a grand prize. So, Josh, reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's grand prize winner. That would be Brendan Fitzpatrick from Washington, D.C. Congratulations, Brendan. And now we have those other four winners to name. Two of them are going to sound familiar. They were randomly chosen, in addition to being randomly chosen by me for their great comments. So, I suppose not so random, Josh. They're being rewarded for their great comments, their great feedback with one of those combo packs.
2: Eric Rasmussen from Palatine, Illinois, Jonathan Kuntz from Iowa City, Iowa, Isaac Rosso-Klakovich from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Amy Sullivan from Germantown, Maryland.
0: The theater director gets a combo pack. Congratulations to Amy and all of our winners. Just email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, and please include your addresses so we can get those prizes out to you. The girls,
3: they all laughed at me. The thing that I me... Mean, was we... Weak. No, Eve was weak. No. Eve
0: was weak. Say it no, uh, Mama. Say it. We move on now to this week's scene where Josh is already making excuses for his performance off air. He's suggesting he may need some accompaniment. Yeah. It's not there for him. The that's last time a little we, bit of a hint. The last time we sang for Masker Theater, we that's had true. musical accompaniment. We had instruments. Abraham Levitime was there to <laughs> yeah, that's right. help us
2: out and really carry the thing. Also for the record. No. You're all alone. My daughter tells me, who's a much better singer than I am, like, yeah, hugely better, never sing in the morning. And we're recording this portion of the show in the morning. Okay. So that's. So give me a little, like, <laughs> my voice isn't warmed up
0: yet. Great. Now that we have that all covered, I like my part because I get to sort of just talk, sing, which is yeah. my mode of singing anyway. But emphasize the singing part, though. Yeah. Don't just got... try to talk this. Whatever. You got to do a little bit. Don't direct me, Josh. <laughs> that could <comes, laughs> get Amy. That I comes need directly from Amy. Okay, I started off. You're going to give me the action. Are you ready? And action. I'm glad we caught you at home. Could we use your phone? We're both in a bit of a hurry. We'll just say where we are, then go back to the car. We don't want to be any worry.
2: Well, you got caught with a
0: flat. Well, how about that? Well, babies, don't you panic.
2: By the light of the night. It'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. And
0: scene. Did I hit two out of 14 notes? I don't know what you were doing. I don't know what you were doing, but hopefully a listener out there does. Josh and... You can tell us what scene we just massacred. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 18th. Would have been much better later. I'm sure, Josh.
2: The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. I saw you at the
3: hospital. Are you from here? Yeah. Do you like it here? I'm really interested in architecture. I uh, hear this town is quite the Mecca.
0: John Cho with Haley Lou Richardson in the trailer for Columbus, which opens here in Chicago and elsewhere in limited release this weekend. It's a first time feature from a writer director who goes by the name Kogonata. And not only was I not familiar with Kogonata. Well, it turns out I was. I just didn't know him by name. I had seen some of his video essays. Yeah, He me is too. known for his work breaking down Brisson, Wes Anderson, Kubrick, among others. He was actually doing a dissertation on Ozu when he really fully realized that he wanted to be a filmmaker himself. And this is a film about a town and about people in this town that I had never even heard of. There are neighbors just, just to the east of us, Josh, but Columbus, Indiana, a town that is known for its architecture because at one point in time they invited all these modernist architects to come build homes and other buildings in their city. And the Haley Lou Richardson character we meet is very tuned into that. She does not just take it for granted that she grew up in this town and she walks by the stuff every day. She actually fully appreciates it. John Cho plays a character who is the son of a famous modern architecture scholar and he comes to the town to give a lecture and ends up in the hospital and John Cho is just sort of in a purgatory kind of waiting for something to happen with his dad and they meet and do make a connection I suppose over their pain and also over their appreciation for architecture so when you consider that the movie is about Mm -hmm. architecture and it's made by someone who has a background in video essays breaking down the visual strategies of revered filmmakers, you might expect it to have a pretty meticulous visual look. And this film certainly has that. Was that for you the biggest strength of the movie? No, the biggest strength is how it goes a step further in that
2: it's not just exquisitely framing these exquisitely designed buildings or spaces. It spends a lot of time, gives a lot of attention to interior spaces as well. But it's taking that and putting it into service of actual cinema. So the way the camera moves among these spaces, the angles that it takes of certain details, and the way it does work into the story of these two characters as well. Maybe the best example I can give is where it's at night and Casey has taken Jin to this building that's in a strip mall, nondescript strip mall otherwise, but it's an office space that's been built above it, it looks like, and it's illuminated. It's very modernist, so clean lines, straight lines, and she describes how she comes here because it makes her feel at peace. It soothes her, and there's a lot of talk here about how spaces and buildings can either soothe or unsettle us. And if they can. If really. they can, but and the movie shows how they do mm-hmm. that, though, by putting these characters in those spaces, and in this particular instance, her hand comes into the frame and starts to trace those lines for him as she's talking about what a surprise and what a wonder it is that this building exists. I think she says something about amidst all this mess. Mm-hmm. And here we're getting the movement of her hand that brings more cinema into it, I guess, sure. than just showing these locations. So definitely that elevates Columbus for me and really puts it up there with some of the, the more significant films about architecture. This yeah. is a really this is a subgenre that appeals to me quite a bit. And you get masters who have done this, like from Murnau to Lang, um, to little one-offs like The International, which is a Tom Tickver thriller with Clive Owen that also pays very close attention to buildings and spaces and how that can fit with what's going on in the screen. So yeah, Columbus was a
0: delight. Yeah, it really is. And I think I probably would have been fairly satisfied with it had it just continued to devote the attention that it does to the framing those compositions and where the actors are positioned in connection to and that really is the the point here they are connecting with their environment as opposed to feeling like they are just being staged in the space that's all there but I also really cared about these characters and appreciated the story and so it goes for something well beyond just being about the architecture or just being about look at how great of a frame this is and i think that the fact that he has made a film about these two characters who come at architecture and come at this environment from different perspectives you have one who has this great knowledge of architecture because he was raised in a house where it's all that was talked about very clearly but is kind of ambivalent about it because of that Mm -hmm. so he's he's an outsider and then you have the insider perspective but someone who as i said doesn't just take it for granted actually looks at it as someone who every day it's as if she's looking at it for the first time. So when we as a viewer are watching it through their eyes, the person who is seeing it for the first time and the person who it's as if they are, well, then that's how we start to take in those surroundings as well. And so it makes the whole experience a very charged one it makes it seem like you're interacting with the environment as well through the screen so Koganada i think really has achieved something here i think the performances i mean Haley lou richardson is fantastic here and she's very good in the edge of 17 yep. i think we've seen her in a couple other things that are not coming to mind right now but a real breakout performance here for her i think and john show as well i'm going to say
2: the performances were the one thing I maybe had a quibble with, hmm. actually. And it isn't them so much, because I agree, both very talented and their characters definitely re- register and their stories add something to this experience. Her parallel is that she lives with her mother who's mm-hmm. a recovering addict and feels protective of her. So it's almost the opposite of Jin, yes. who has this distant relationship yes. with his father. I like how those two stories worked but both are stuck off of each other. Of yes. yes. But there was something, it's almost as if, Koganada is trying to impose this sterile, reserved... You understand what he's going for, what the movie's going for in the Mm -hmm. performances, that contemplative. Yeah. Um, But it pushed over to Wooden for me in in Mm. certain instances that I think maybe would come with more work with actors, Mm -hmm. with with more... Because the story is there, the idea is there, and the performers are there, the talent is there. But the best performance scene that worked for me was the one where he pushed his aesthetics super far and we see them talking from the other side of a window pane mm-hmm. and we can't hear what they're saying. Right. And that that was almost like it's taking the, stiffness is the wrong word, but but the interaction between them and really removing us from it even further than um, the dialogue scenes sure. did that worked for me a little bit better than when they were engaged in lengthy conversation. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't really have that issue. I mean, there's certainly something about the Cho character where he is detached and he doesn't want to be there. And he has trouble connecting, I think, at first with Casey. So we, we feel that distance a little bit. But I think she really brings out of him, obviously, something something lying beneath all of that and some other well of emotion that really does come up, I think, in a very subtle way. And that's what I like about Richardson's performance as well. This really could have been a kind of go-for-broke, woe-is-me-dealing-with-my-mom-at-home kind of performance, very big and kind of attention-grabbing and overly emotional. And every scene she surprised me. There's at least one moment in every scene with her where her, her face or the way she says a certain line or a smile or a laugh just completely... Caught me off guard. So I'm a big fan of her performance here. And as we said, of the film in general, we may have more discussion of this film on the show because. I think I'm going to talk to Koganata still, and I don't know if that's going to be for a show two weeks from now or not. He might just come on and do the film Spotting 5. We'll talk about the movie a little bit, but I'm excited about that possibility. And, of course, it's going to come up because this is now a golden brick contender for the year. First-time filmmaker, clear artistic vision. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, we both responded to in a very positive way. For me, I hate to handicap these things too early. We have a lot of films left right now, It's the leader in the clubhouse for me.
2: I'd have to look at the list again. Uh, It's definitely strong. Right up there with it for me is still Raw. I figure. Um,
0: and yeah, there's a couple others. I think we have maybe six or I seven at up, this point. Yeah, so I think we're, getting we're up a good to six group. now. Yeah. We are. And if you want to see that complete list, just go to filmspotting.net slash bricks or go to our web page, click on lists, and you'll find all of our golden brick past winners and nominees there. We do remind you that Columbus is out this weekend here in Chicago. It's playing at the Music Box and it is playing in select cities elsewhere around the country. All right, Adam, feel like revisiting a few psychological scars? No. We're going to anyway. We're going back to the
2: 1980s when we were kids watching way too many Stephen King movies. The film Spotting Top 5 Stephen King Scares is next. Stay with us.
3: Hey, spotting. It's Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan. You guys are going to be talking about your favorite Stephen King scares. And for me, it's the discovery of Ray Brower's body in Stand By Me, Uh, something that isn't scary per se but really shakes you uh, to the core. I mean, I had older siblings babysitting me, mischievously exposing me to lots of freaky horror films, and yet this film and seeing this dead kid's face was in this indescribable way, the scariest thing I think I saw as a kid, uh, I guess it was more startling, Um, like the purest, gut-wrenching communication of the fragility of your life. Even after multiple views, uh, I still can't hold my eyes on the screen for the entirety of those brief few seconds that his dead eyes stare up at us, uh, at the four boys. Uh, The movie has so much to say about friendship uh, and a lot of things. But here it shows, uh, albeit a bit gruesomely, uh, how precious your life is.
0: Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan, with a perfect setup for our top five this week Stephen King movie scares Jeff Milo with the delayed film spotting Turkey by the way a couple episodes ago he helped us with our top five we heard him in episode 643 we heard him in episode 644 alas there was a gap in between now where we hear from him again so gone on vacation yeah sorry Jeff but Sorry, Jeff, you almost pulled it off, but we do love that voicemail, of course, talking about Rob Reiner's Stand By Me, an adaptation of King's 1982 novella, The Body. And I think more than anything, what it helps remind us and remind our listeners as we go into our picks, Josh, is that what scares us is incredibly personal. Yes, And- how you saw something and when you saw something can have just as much of an impact as the scene itself. I'm sure that we will get into some of those details and those finer points as we get through our picks. And we heard from a lot of people on Twitter and also on our Facebook page with comments about their favorite Stephen King movie scare. And some of them fell right into line with what Jeff said there. For example, that scene from The Body, Jeff makes a great case for it, not one that I would consider for this list because it doesn't scare me in the way these other scenes that i did go with do andy wilkowska in st paul minnesota said while not a horror movie the execution of delacroix in the green mile is also truly horrific it is without a doubt i thought of it but again doesn't scare me andrew howell carries mom no question okay and henrik molgaard who was on facebook like andrew said the religious nutbag in the mist too many real life parallels so those are all really valid picks, but maybe don't meet my definition. They're disturbing in some way, or they unnerve you a little bit, but don't scare me. So what scares you, Josh? How did you come at this list? Yeah, a couple of listeners also pointed out that not all moments from the
2: movies are drawn perfectly from the books, but they were still eligible for me. So right. I am going... And I didn't go back and verify all right, of these. Exactly. I don't know if they live I just in the kingdom. Went, I just went with what was in the movies here. And this is... Related to what Jeff was talking about a little bit here, these are not necessarily the best Stephen King movies. At least my picks aren't. I know that they're largely recognized as not being the best. So some of my picks are going to come from terrible films, but that's what we're just saying. They did scare me in the moment, Mm -hmm. or at least the age that I saw them. Definitely, that's the case with my number five, because this pick comes from what is generally regarded, I think, as the worst of the King adaptations, Maximum Overdrive. (laughs) Written and directed by King himself. Don't know if that's the reason it falls so low, but it also stars, here's perhaps another reason, Emilio Estevez. Yes, this was in 1986. It's about a cosmic event that causes machines on Earth to come to life and begin attacking humans. Does not sound scary, right? And maybe I'm picking it just because ACDC is all over this movie, Adam. I know you can rock to acdc oh yeah to me that's terror <laughs> having to listen <laughs> to acdc not... is audio terror so i could pick just you know the fact that they play hell's bells as my king's scare but instead i'm going to go with the moment where a diner waitress played by Ellen McElduff is attacked by an electric knife hey
3: those eggs coming ponies, express or what just a minute sir
2: What is awful, at least what I remember being awful about this, and I watched it again, is you see it coming. It's just sitting there pointing at her, and you know what's going on here, and you have to wait for the blood to come. There's nothing you can do about it. Then there's the sign, that awful noise. Then once she gets off of her, it just lays there on the floor, and it kind of flops around like this dying fish <laughs> until Estevez comes in and takes a hammer to it. Nail it. This is one that obviously I saw as a kid. I would have been 12 when Maximum Overdrive came out. I still blame it for my deep unease around not just electric knives, but like weed whackers or <laughs> maybe even irons. Does Debbie I don't do know. all that irons. lawn work, Josh? Yes. I can't go near the weed whacker. Oh, man. No, I, I, I use it, but with a little dread and a little trepidation <laughs> because of Maximum Overdrive. Okay. Don't, even, don't even talk to me about carving the
0: Thanksgiving turkey. I, bet not. I, I like that to go you, old huh? school with just the regular knife. <laughs> Keep the electric knife away from me. Okay. Well, I've got a different kind of blade coming up here in my top five. I do want to set it up by trying to define a little bit further what I mean by scary. For me personally, gross and disturbing. Sometimes those are elements. Certainly they are elements, but that doesn't alone cut it. It really is a case where it either gave me nightmares and some of these did like caused me distress throughout my whole adolescence which did happen lost many hours of sleep exactly but the other the other way i can really define it josh is to say that it truly is and and this is not a surprise to anyone who has watched a scary movie and reacted to it it's physiological it it makes you shiver mm-hmm. it, it really does make you shiver from head to toe or it Activates that flight response. Yes. And we've talked about this on the show yes. before with other scary top fives. It makes you instinctively want to either run out of the room or, at minimum, shut it off. If you're watching on a DVD, you have to shut it off or you're just trying to get away from it. That's your immediate reaction to it. So that's how I approached this list. And the big issue for me was trying to balance how much it scared me when I saw it, how I remember it, and how I reacted to it, and how much it still scares me now. And we'll see how I did with that balance. My number five is The Dead Zone, and there is not an electric knife in this David Cronenberg film that I'm aware of, but there are bloody scissors. This is the film that I really love from the 80s, starring Christopher Walken as a guy who gets into a car accident, awakens from a coma, and discovers that he has psychic abilities now. He just touches you, shakes your hand, or puts his hand on your shoulder, and he can see into your future somehow. And at one point, he does come across... A political candidate running for president and sees something in the future that changes his life, certainly forever. So you want to talk about real life parallels brought up there in that Facebook comment? It is hard to get past the horror of Martin Sheen, pre-Jed Bartlett, playing an egomaniacal president, <laughs> totally unfit for the office, who loves the idea of firing missiles.
3: Do it, Jimmy. You're
0: insane.
3: I won't. Do it! Put your hand on a scanning screen and you'll go down in history with me. As what? The world's greatest mass murderers? You cowardly bastard! You're not the voice of the people! I am the voice of the people! The people speak through me, not you! It came to me while I slept, Sonny. My destiny. In the middle of the night, it came to me. I must get up now, right now, and fulfill my destiny! Now you put your goddamn hand on that scanning screen, or I'll hack it off and put it on for you! Do it!
0: That's not it, though, Josh. The more troubling scene is when Johnny, the walk-in character, gets wrangled into helping the police catch a serial killer. He has a vision. They track the guy down. He's with the sheriff, played by Tom Skerritt. They go to the house, and the guy, apparently knowing he's been caught, knowing that they've, they've found him at his house, Cronenberg cuts to him up in his bathroom, and he's just completely stone-faced, and he starts to lean forward slowly and then you finally see in the frame that he's he's approaching with his mouth a pair of scissors that he has propped up and then cronenberg cuts away so you're already the shivers are starting because you just can't imagine You can't imagine a pair of scissors being thrust into your mouth and and through your head, but that seems like what is about to happen. About 20 seconds later, the sheriff then comes across the bathroom door, opens it up. The killer is in the bathtub. The scissors are indeed through the back of his throat, blood everywhere. And it certainly did the first time I see it activate that response in me. It's gross, but Cronenberg doesn't show us the act. He makes us use our imagination, and that is worse than anything. I gasp every time I see this scene. And then, kind of going back to your comment about the electric knife, Cronenberg cuts back to him after he's shown us the reactions of Scarrett and Walken. He cuts back to the bathtub, and the guy is twitching. He's just twitching in the tub. He's not fully dead yet. So he's gone through that, but he's not dead yet. And that was, for me, the one, Josh, that was a little bit different than the other picks on my list in that it it didn't scare me in the way monsters scare me. But the imagery of it was so startling and so shocking that it has always stayed with me. So maybe I'm glad I didn't
2: watch Dead Zone as homework for this list. It's one of <laughs> it's the such few a good movie. that I haven't seen that I thought I should. Watch Misery instead. Oh, that sounds rough. My number four, Trapped in the Car. This is from Cujo. And this isn't tied to the fact that like I have a dog problem. I'm <laughs> not afraid of dogs at all, have had a pet dog my whole life, love dogs. But Cujo did a number on me okay. when I saw it. And I think This is, of course, you know, the monster movie where the monster is this relentless, rabid dog. And partly because that dog is a St. Bernard who, you know, I think of as this lovable breed. I associate it with tenderness, Mm -hmm. protectiveness. And here it's this demon beast that just won't stop. It's, you know, a low rent Jaws. Yeah, in some ways. But at the time that I saw it as a kid... It really, really did work me over. Dee Wallace, here we have again. Talked about her from E.T. last week. She plays a mother who gets trapped in a car that won't start and then is attacked by Cujo. She's in there with her young son. And this takes up from my memory. I just watched a few clips of it, but I think a pretty good chunk of the film. I oh, remember yeah. this as being like the centerpiece it of the film. It is, without a so.
0: doubt. Oh, there's no mom. no baby,
1: Get out of my it's not a monster. It's just a doggy.
2: It's not a monster, just a doggy. Sure, Mom. Yeah, <laughs> that kid is never gonna believe her again. No, that kid, Tad, played by Danny Pintaro. Oh yeah, he's so terrified. He was the
1: boss. Is he that, on, is the that the what boss. he went
2: on to? Okay. Yeah. I was going to look up what else he did. That's hilarious. He's so scared here. Yeah. This poor kid. It's It seems, I mean, even watching it as an adult, so real. And that really bothered me. As a kid, I probably, I would have been older than he is in the scene, but still, maybe that's worse, you know, like as an older kid often and maybe as the oldest in your family, you feel protective of younger mm-hmm. kids. And so to watch this kid go through this is awful and then there's something about what they do to the dog Mm -hmm. it's so dirty it's just slobbering and drooling there's blood from other victims all over its face and it's muddy dirty their car just from this thing trying to get in goes from being bright yellow to to basically like brown at the end because it's pawed at it so much so i felt bad for the kid i felt bad for the dog too kooja was just a terrible experience (laughs) a terrible yeah not not
0: not just movie experience a terrible life experience <laughs> thank you stephen king yes. and filmmakers appreciate so that. a great transition couldn't have been a better transition into my number 4 first of all because you touched on something that i'm going to touch on which is what king i think does so well what we all react to one of the things is the way he takes things that should be natural and subverts them. So he takes the St. Bernard, yeah, right. our instinctive reaction to it as this peaceful, loving, harmless dog. And the mom saying it's just a doggy. That's how we view animals. And then saying, no, this is a vicious killer. And that subversion is, is what flips a switch in us as well. And I think really activates the terror. So we've got that in my next scene. And we also have another case of a parent trying to protect its children and pets. Involved because I'm going with Pet Cemetery from 1989, oh, no. and I, I'm combining here Creepy Zelda with Creepy Gauge. The plot of Pet Cemetery is simply a doctor moves his family to Maine, and their cat is killed, and they get some advice, some bad advice from the the people in the town from this guy who befriends them, named Judd. That there's this pet cemetery where the local. Legend has it that you bury your pet there, it will come back to life. So they do that, but when the cat comes back, it's not quite the same lovable, fluffy cat that it used to be. Well, then there's a terrible accident involving their young son, Gage, who I didn't look it up, but he can't be more than, I'm going to say about four in this movie, four or five at the very most in the film. He gets hit by a truck right outside their house on their street. And Of course, what does the dad do? What would any dad do who has even the remote possibility of bringing their son back? He takes the kid to the pet cemetery. So then the kid comes back. And Josh, once you get past the unintentional humor of this Chucky-like boy diving from the attic down onto his dad, they have a fight. The boy, the new demon boy and his dad have a fight. And then Gage comes toward his dad with a knife and he's growling. And the dad gets him with a shot in his neck to kill him. And it's the cry he lets out. Gage lets out this completely unnatural sounding cry, like the sound of a creature that he's become. He's not really human anymore. But as the cry goes on, the whale gradually transforms into something totally natural. He's a little boy again. Right before the dad's eyes. That's the horror of it. The dad having to confront the fact that he was justified, certainly, but he just re-killed his own son. So that's really scary stuff. But Josh, that doesn't, that doesn't come anywhere close to zelda have you seen pet cemetery i have not but i saw a lot of zelda mentioned oh my goodness on social media. okay so it turns out i only had gauged in my head before all those social media mentions i realized that i had blocked out zelda from pet cemetery Sounds completely like good there is a very good reason <laughs> the mother in this film her name is rachel she's very sensitive about discussing death around the kids once they go to the cemetery for the first time it turns out she's traumatized by the death of her sister Zelda, who had spinal meningitis. So we see this story as a flashback young Rachel being alone with her sister when she died. And Zelda is just immediately a very scary, grotesque figure. Played by a man, I found out, played by a man because they couldn't find a woman bony enough, skeletal enough to play this character. There's a later scene, though, Josh, in Pet Cemetery, where I think Rachel's having a nightmare. It's, it's in the present day, and she's having a nightmare. She's hearing Zelda calling her name. She goes up the stairs and opens the bedroom door.
1: Rachel?
3: Is
0: that you? Zelda is crouched down by the window. And I already have a thing about crouching, re-watching it this time, going back to Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me and Bob, and, and just scary figures sort of crouched in a corner and then coming towards you. That's exactly what happens here. She looks at Rachel slowly comes toward her but it's like she's coming right towards us she is coming right towards the camera if this is sounding familiar at all even if you haven't seen pet cemetery it might be because on our top five childhood movie scares list we did in october of last year for halloween with the horror director ty west Mm -hmm. who's made a couple great horror films including the house of the devil it was his number two The scenes with Zelda were his number two childhood scare. And I think here that with both these scenes, King just does tap into our our most basic and universal fears. Here it's guilt. The father first letting the son die, now having to kill him. What parent, as I said, wouldn't try to do anything available to them, even if it seemed dubious and dangerous? What parent wouldn't try to do anything to bring your child back? And then here you have this sister who hated her own sister and was terrified of her and couldn't do anything to save her. And that guilt manifests itself in these visions. And it's scary, Josh. I watched the Zelda scenes last night in preparation for this list, and I seriously closed my laptop like three times. (laughs)
2: I don't need any of that. I don't think I'm going to be watching <laughs> Pet Cemetery. I was disappointed to hear that this was going to be on your list, though, because I was doing some Massacre Theater research. Oh. And yeah. found this. You mentioned him. Judd. Judd Jud Crandall, played by Fred Gwynn. Right. Oh, so right. Ru- can, can I just do a little bit of it? Please. Because.
0: Because. I'm just Massacre Theater. Yeah. I, this was irresistible. What we did lose
3: was a secret thing. Women are supposed to be the ones who are good at keeping secrets. But any woman who knows that at all will tell you she's never seen into a man's heart.
2: She's never seen into a man's heart. The soil of a man's, of a man's, heart. Heart. Of a man's heart, Lewis Estonia Like the soil up there in the old Micmac burial old, ground. Micmac burial ground. Not bad. In <laughs> scene. Not bad, right? No. Oh. It's pretty close. There was a whole super cut oh, yeah. of his scenes oh, yeah. on YouTube yeah. that. I'll watch that. I don't need any of that other nonsense okay. you're talking about. <laughs> you're number three. My number three, The Fiery Rundown in Christine. More machines, Adam. Like Maximum More Overdrive. Machines. More machines. Uh, this came out, of course, before Maximum Overdrive. It was in 1983. I probably saw it. I know I saw it later than that on video or something, VHS. Is this why you always ride a bike to recording? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Wait, is there a horror bike movie? Did probably. Do that? He'll get to it. I do remember watching this at my friend's house with his older brothers, and the intention was to laugh at it, just Mm -hmm. what we were doing about the bike, right? A killer car. Yeah, this is going to be hilarious. Come on. They laughed, but I was younger. My friend and I were younger, and I remember that the movie did get to me, especially the scene. This is after Christine crashes into a gas station, catches fire from an explosion, and then still pursues one of her victims, played by William Ostrander. The car's set aflame here. It looks like a medieval dragon or a demon floating above the dark road. And eventually, it's not just that it runs over the kid, but kind of devours him so that when we see his body, it's in flames as well. I had totally forgotten until looking up some of this stuff that Christine was directed by John Carpenter. And I really need to do a John Carpenter Mia mm-hmm. culpa personal retrospective at some point because... You know, I'm not the hugest fan of The Thing. I didn't want to get into it on last week's show. I want to save my bullets for Michael's support of the Wrath of Khan. I thought that was Uh (laughs) a better use of my time. But just watching these scenes from Christine really makes me want to reevaluate Carpenter's work. I mean, especially in the context of clips from stuff like Pet Cemetery or Maximum Overdrive or even Cujo, where it's, you know, the filmmaking is very rudimentary, if not clumsy. Then all of a sudden you see this scene of the car and Christine coming after this kid and you're, you're dealing with a different level of terror.
0: Yeah, Christine did not make my list but i'm really happy to see it on yours my number three is a much more obvious film for this list and a much more obvious scene but it had to be here those cute little grady twins josh they just want to play with you what are you so afraid of why are you running away from the grady twins cute cute they're cute well okay maybe not the shining 1980 come play with us danny riding his big wheel around the halls of the Overlook Hotel, comes around the corner to see those girls. Way back on episode 419, another Halloween episode we did, Top 5 Terrifying Characters, I had the Grady Twins at number three. So number three in all of cinema, not just talking about Stephen King movies. And then that list I referenced with Ty West, it was his number one childhood movie scare. And I thought, why don't we just go ahead and hear Ty discussing how much this horrified him.
1: Very first thing I ever remember, because i watched all oh, I'd seen the end of Friday the Thirteenth. It scared me as well. I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street, and obviously I mentioned before, it scared me. I'd seen all kinds of things that had scared me, but something about those two little girls in that hallway it transcended all of it, and like just shook me to like the core. Whereas for like weeks, I just I couldn't even look at if someone showed me a picture of them it like freaked me out. Yeah. I couldn't think about what they come play with us, Danny? Like for it just, and it had nothing to do with the sort of dead bodies of them with the axes on the floor. I mean, that was gross and everything, but it was the, something about the symmetricalness of the shot and the way, the tone of that film. It, it just, I had never seen anything like that before. And I had seen, I was always trying to watch scary movies and trying to find like, the. I would like dare myself to find what's supposed to be the scariest one ever. And somehow The Shining just like brought it all to a halt and just, it like it really messed me up and i mean i think room 237 in the shining had a very similar effect uh with like bathrooms and stuff but but something about those two little girls it just i couldn't I mean, I remember all the way up into my sort of like early teens, I was still freaked out by it.
0: So obviously we were in complete agreement, both with Ty and his take on the scene. It's not about the dead bodies and the blood. It's about Danny's reaction. It's about the non-reactions on the faces of the girls. It's about the symmetry of the shot. It's a lot of things, including the fact that we just come around the corner lazily with Danny. Kubrick... And maybe uh, another director, not as seasoned, maybe a little more impatient than Kubrick, might have felt the urge to kind of whip around that corner and show us a glimpse of those girls as fast as possible. And instead, Kubrick just really slowly lets the big wheel completely turn the corner until it's dead on with those girls. (laughs) Danny clearly sees them before we ever do, but by the time we get there, it has an impact. I remember watching this scene for our Sacred Cow discussion that we did on this movie, I don't know how many years ago, and I had kind of forgotten about it somehow. I hadn't seen The Shining, probably in its entirety, since I was a kid. And so when he comes around that corner, I felt like I was coming around the corner for the first time, and I was frozen in terror.
3: And ever.
2: So what you're getting at, that's exactly where I'm moving towards, is where the filmmaking starts to become part of the reason Mm -hmm. why this has terrified me. My next two picks are ones that I saw, yes, as a kid, and yet still today when I watch them you have that same visceral reaction. And it has all to do with who's behind the camera and what they are deciding to do. So Carrie is where I'm going with my number two. And I chose prom night. Could go a lot of directions with Carrie. I know that listeners on Twitter and Facebook mentioned the shock ending, the hand coming out of the grave. But for me, Carrie is all about the prom. So after Carrie, Sissy Spacek here, has been dumped with the pig's blood on stage, Brian De Palma just goes nuts. The movie goes bonkers. He zooms in on Carrie's terrified, mortified face. And what, I mean, what a face. In all of horror cinema, that shot of SpaceX face sticks with you. Then he cuts to these kaleidoscopic POV shots mm-hmm. that watching it again, I noticed it focuses on those who were laughing at her, actually laughing at her, but then adds characters who we just saw we're looking concerned yeah, or or even like disapproving. Yeah, I noticed that again, a teacher and other characters who are on her side, we think. And then when the kaleidoscope hits, Mm -hmm. they all become her enemies. And I love how the filmmaking does this. Then her face slightly transforms to suggest this merciless anger. uh, And De Palma goes to split screen where we get to see that face. It's always with us. Carrie's face never leaves us, even as we also see uh, the actions that she's taking. She's closing, locking the doors, turning out the lights, trapping these victims so she can unleash her telekinetic revenge. What's scary about this also is you're watching Carrie grow in confidence of these powers in this sequence. She's coming into her own in this really awful way. And I like how SpaceX does this. Yes, by changing expressions slightly, but more, it's more her movements. She gets calm and she becomes intentional even as things become more... Chaotic around her. She grows more assured. So I think we completely understand the motivation behind her revenge and her transformation here. So it's the psychology behind the terror that's uh, really so viscerally realized and probably why Carrie is as scary
0: as it is. We sympathize with the anger and the violence. Mm-hmm. We absolutely do. Great pick. More on Carrie here in a moment. First, my number two and regular listeners of the show certainly saw this one coming. It's my total nostalgia pick, it turns out, the nineteen seventy nine movie, T V movie, mini series, directed by the recently departed Toby Hooper. It is Salem's Lot. And I was almost going to force myself to rewatch this movie for the first time since I was maybe Five years old. The I mean, I saw thing. this kind of when it came out, and then I saw that it was three hours long, and <laughs> and that just wasn't going to happen over Labor Day weekend, Josh. But this was, on that list of childhood movie scares, my number one. I've talked about it a ton. It's going to keep the mantle here. It's going to be at number two on this list, even though watching it now... It doesn't have the same power over me. And that's big because even for other lists over the years of doing this show that this scene has come up or I've told this story about the impact it had on me and how it traumatized me. The fact is, I had never actually rewatched it. I had never wanted to go to YouTube. I was so scared of it, even now as a grown man that I did not want to watch it. And for this list, I forced myself to and I discovered that it's not very scary. (laughs) Guess what? Was it, is that a relief? Not very scary. Relief or kind of sad? No, both, actually. Sadness is a good way to put it, but more relief. I would say definitely more relief. And one thing I'd also blocked out is there are actually two such scenes. So the one I'm referencing is Let Me In, I'm Your Friend. When the vampire, the boy, comes to the window, floating up to the window of one of his friends with the yellow eyes, knocking on the door, because of course the vampires, he's knocking on the window, the vampires have to be invited yes, in. They, they can't just force themselves in. I always remembered the one where the boy who is our main character in the story sees his friend is wondering what's going on and looks like he's going to let him in, but then grabs a cross that he has and scares him away. There's actually another scene right before it where that boy had just been transformed by his brother in a similar scene. It's his brother at the window and he's floating with the yellow eyes and he, he comes in. Of course he lets his brother in and he's just so wowed by everything that he lets him in and, There you go. He turns into a vampire, then goes off to try to transform his friend.
3: Open the window. Open the window, Mark. Open the window, Mark. Please, let me in.
0: I have said this before on the show, but just to really fully explain to the listener the effect these scenes had on me as a kid, probably way too young to be watching these. From the time I was five years old or so up until I was in college, Josh, I would not sleep with my curtains open for fear that some figure with yellow eyes was going to float to the window actually i didn't even have a second story bedroom it was just they could just walk right up how how even more walking, scary would that be walking vampires are yes, worse exactly that something was going to come to my window that i closed those shades every night and i mean there could not be a centimeter showing had to be fully a yellow closed. eye could peek through a centimeter that's what i'm saying so that's how i was for most of my life and then i finally got to a point where i was like okay i can deal with this but even right now, Josh, if I had a bedroom that was positioned in such a way where my bed and my head was by that window, it's not right now. If my head was right by the window, I don't think I would sleep with it open at night because of Salem's Lot still to this day. I think you got to get through that. You're, I think Salem's Lot on a loop,
2: next next three-day weekend we have. Yeah, <laughs> Just maybe. spend it watching Salem's Lot on a loop. You'll come out fine. Yeah. You'll get it out of your system. And you can sleep with your shades on. Maybe
0: I can. It's lovely. The sun comes up in the morning, (laughs) gently wakes you up. I've been missing out on so much over the years. But yeah, let me in. I'm your friend. My number two maybe would have been number one, if not for the fact that I really like where I ended up at number one, but also because of the fact that, as I said, it didn't really still scare me watching it now. But watching some scenes of the master vampire from Salem's Lot on YouTube. That still gave me shivers, Josh. Something about the way they shoot this blue Nosferatu-like figure with those yellow eyes still, even to this day, kind of kind of scared me and made me feel like a little kid all over again. So that, that Toby Hooper movie still has some power in it. All right.
2: The one for me that has the most power and why it had to be at number one was The Shining. Could have gone in a number of directions with this one as well. Probably this is the film I saw mentioned the most by listeners on Facebook and Twitter. And I did see a lot of Grady twins picks. Obviously, that makes sense. The elevator full of blood would be a good one, too. But for me, I'm going with the scene that inspired the title of a recent documentary on The Shining, Room 237, Mm -hmm. particularly the woman in the bathtub. I think between this is how I've been scarred, Adam. Between Psycho and this, it took me a long time to get over a fear of hotel
0: bathrooms of naked
2: women. <laughs> <laughs> there's, we'll get to there's a combination where this scene goes. But for me, it was just the space. The fact of taking this space that on vacations you'd encounter, it's unfamiliar, should be very bland. Maybe we're going back to what you were saying about Cujo and the dogs taking things that are just everyday and right. making them evil. Yep. If I walked into a hotel bathroom and that curtain was half drawn, <laughs> I would not want to, but I would have to go in there and pull it all the Mm. way back. And those were a terrifying three seconds. (laughs) Nothing bad ever happened to me. Right. But it could. It could. Now, the scene in The Shining plays out in psychological slow motion when Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance goes into this hotel suite. So he has to progress through a few rooms to get to the bathroom. And this is all from his point of view. There, yes, the nude woman pulls back the curtain slowly, gets out to embrace him. And then in the mirror, he sees that she's actually this decomposing corpse way, way, way too young when I first saw this. And there probably wasn't nudity because I do remember seeing it on television at a cousin's house. So they either blurred it out or did something. It wasn't, you know, the original version, but still you get a sense of what's going on. And this combination of sex and death when you're little is just messed up, you know, to, to put those things together in this way. Add on top of that. While this is going on in room 237, Kubrick cuts away to these insert shots of young Danny shivering and frothing at the mouth. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Danny, child actor Danny Lloyd. He was pretty much my 1980 doppelganger. (laughs) So it was like looking in a mirror. I even had those overalls, those jean overalls that he wore. Mm -hmm. So this is like looking at myself being traumatized as I'm being traumatized. You didn't talk to your finger, though, did you? (laughs) No, I did not take it that far. So yeah, room 237, that scene messed me up. Unlike my first three picks, it does still work on me as an adult. And yeah, it still worked on me when we watched again for our Sacred Cow. On episode 419, I dreaded Jack Nicholson going into that room. Yeah, And he always does.
0: (laughs) It's so good. Okay, my number one Stephen King movie scare. You sort of casually flipped over this one, Josh, when you were setting up your pick from Carrie. I am going with Carrie's hand? hand. Yeah, from beyond gotcha. the grave at first, as I was putting this list together, this was an honorable mention. And then it snuck on to like the number five slot. And the more time I spent on the list, it just kept creeping up and creeping up until it was actually number one. A couple of things happened that really changed my mind on it. One was I did just have to think about that scene in its context sure. and recognize it in terms of its legacy. When you Google anywhere scariest scenes of all time, this comes up for a reason. And I I had to recognize it for that, even though personally, I don't have a connection to it the way I do, for example, to the scenes from Salem's Lot, obviously. But when I thought about it at the time, the impact it must have had, I think about me watching it for the first time. And I don't even know when I saw that scene from Carrie. I probably actually didn't watch Carrie in its entirety and see that end scene until I was in college. I saw bits of it on TV as a kid but never the whole film. But I was sure that there were people out there who, of course, remembered being in a theater in 1976. What must that have been like? Mm -hmm. To get to that point at the end of the film, this serene fantasy sequence, we don't know it's a fantasy slash nightmare, even though De Palma gives us some visual cues that something weird is going on. Amy Irving recovering from this trauma, and she goes to the grave of Carrie, and that hand shoots up. What must that have been like? I put it out on Twitter. Anybody out there remember being in the theater when this happened? At Robert Floyd wrote in, saw it with a date. She screamed. I left finger marks in the armrest. A masterful scare moment with perfect timing. No chance to prepare. At Phillips Tribune. Sound familiar? Yeah. Capitol Theater, Racine, Wisconsin, 1976. Unforgettable Screaming. (laughs) unforgettable screaming so that was just michael yeah exactly so i'm i'm giving it the credit it's due for the legacy it has and for prompting that reaction in theaters all across the country in 1976 and probably at some revivals that have gone on in the decades since but then i watched it again I had kept leaving it off the list, Josh, or like I said, as an honorable mention, just because I thought, well, how can it how can it be scary now? It's a it's a gotcha kind of moment. Mm -hmm. It's the hand shooting up. And if you know it's coming, then it doesn't have the same impact. So it's just not that scary. And then I started the scene at the very beginning where the mom gets the phone call. Amy Irving's mom is talking to someone on the phone and Amy's sleeping and she's saying how, oh, yeah, I think she's going to recover and all this stuff. And she's young enough that she's going to forget all about it. And then we cut to this sequence and it goes on long enough. It's a two to three minute sequence. And De Palma just sets us up for it so much because he makes the scene. Everything about it, so tranquil and so peaceful. It's drenched in that gauzy white light. Yeah. And we think, yeah, she really is in a good place. This Amy Irving character and the fact that she's going to kind of have this moment of closure and reconciliation. She's the only one that will probably go there and not just draw graffiti, but actually think about it. Carrie and who she was as a person and how sad this whole thing is. And so we're thinking about all that. And even though I knew it was coming, I got so lost in it, Josh, that when the hand came shooting up from the grave, I jumped. I jumped watching it on my laptop. It had that impact. on well, me. Well, what
2: you describe is how most movies would have ended. Right. Right. And so to set that up so perfectly. Yeah. It, You know, what sucks is I think, as I remember seeing it, which would have been much later, obviously on VHS again, it was spoiled for me. So it was kind of like the new it coming
0: type thing. So, yeah, to have had that original experience. I don't know if my heart could have have handled it at whatever age I saw it. It also goes back to what we've been saying about those kind of basic fears and also a lot about children and parents. What's maybe even more terrifying than the hand coming up and just the visceral shock of that, it's the way... Amy Irving shrieks in terror it's the nightmare that she wakes up from and the fact that it seems like something where she may not stop Mm -hmm. crying we don't know that she'll ever stop crying from this that's the the way we view it and you have that that sense of denial the mom on the phone just saying oh yeah the doctor says she's gonna be fine I know my daughter's gonna get over this my daughter's not a weirdo now or a freak or whatever that is never gonna overcome this that's that that sense of of a parent wanting to believe it so badly that you can be in denial about it. And then we see the real reaction that this is something that's going to haunt her for the rest of her days as it was something that haunted most people who saw it for the rest of theirs. So Carrie, the hand from beyond the grave, is my number one Stephen King movie scare. We would love to hear your picks we would especially love to hear about your traumas why not use us as your therapists how what many have people out there recovered from how many people out there josh truly listening to the show grew up around the same time we did and have these exact same types of stories of things they don't do or make sure they do all because of things they saw in a Stephen King movie adaptation thanks a lot stephen king thank you <laughs> for ruining our lives basically any other king Moments you want to single out here as honorable mentions? Well, I'm with Jeff Milo, who left us that voicemail
2: on the body in Stand By Me. That was a very disturbing moment. And Andy Elijah on my Facebook page reminded me of the leeches in Stand By Me, which maybe isn't really meant to be like terror scary. But to think about it, to think about your body being covered in them. Yeah. And we went to a lake in Michigan when I was a kid every year. I always stayed away from the pier because I was afraid there'd be leeches on the pier. I don't know where that came from, (laughs) but it was rooted in Stand By Me. It's from that Stephen King book, Leeches on the Pier. (laughs) Yes. Children of the Corn. Didn't make my list, but Malachi. Malachi. Courtney Gaines. What a debut. Speaking of what people went on to do... He had parts in Back to the Future, The Burbs, and still works regularly. Oh, A yeah. ton of TV. The red-haired dude, Malachi. Yeah. But
0: even scarier than Malachi is that other little creepy kid in Children of the Corn who oh, we did a it scene. was Malachi, yeah, No, Malachi did it for me, but we did a scene for Masquerade <laughs> Theater from Children <laughs> yes. of the Corn, and I played the creepy kid saying Malachi. <laughs> One of your best performances. Thank you. Uh, Misery, as
2: uh, I mentioned, I did revisit. Fine. Not really that scary, but I can see
0: why some people would a little terrified of Kathy Bates in that film. Well, my honorable mentions, I already touched on, of course, the window scene at number two and facing the master vampire from Salem's Lot. But there's another one from that movie where I can't remember the actor's name. I meant to look it up. He's a character actor we've seen in a ton of films. I think he's renting a room at a hotel and the, the guy who's renting it to him is sitting downstairs and something's off and he goes upstairs to check on what's happening. And that guy has been turned into a vampire and he's just slowly rocking in a rocking chair. And he lifts his head up, and we see that he's got the yellow eyes. And Josh, that's another case where, when we when we first had kids, and we had the room with the crib in it and the rocking chair, like I would I would get scared sometimes (laughs) about coming around the corner into my baby's room because of that rocking chair, because I would fly. There may have been a vampire rocking your child, (laughs) exactly. Which, you know, maybe I would have welcomed that. Who knows? This is your shift. Great, I'm going back to (laughs) (laughs) bed. The Road Movie Mobile Cinema on Facebook said. The trucks in Pet Cemetery. not so much a scare, but a constant source of dread. That's a good one. Pet Cemetery. I mentioned that Gage gets hit by one of those trucks. King and the filmmaker here turn that into this terrifying presence. These trucks just barreling down this road all times a day as fast as they can. You are constantly waiting for something really terrible to happen. I'm with you on Cujo, any of the dog attacks. And then I'm going to go to 1982, a movie that curiously did not come up in our Best top of five 82? films of 82 my list yours or michael's last week but creep show mm. death by cockroaches didn't see creep show but it sounds terrible one of the sequences involves a lot of cockroaches and i've never been a bug guy honestly that's why i didn't watch indiana jones and the temple of doom in its entirety until just a few years ago. I'd always just watch parts of it as a kid even though I loved the other films because that whole sequence Too going through going through the tunnel <laughs> underground with all those crawly critters I just couldn't do it. But what about the Tarantulas and Raiders? That was okay. I, it's more the I don't like it much either but no it's more than
2: eight legs you start yeah, to get a little oh, yeah okay. Yeah,
0: definitely. So just a few of the ones that came up on my honorable mentions again we would love to hear your picks and your traumas feedback at filmspotting.net filmspotting.net
2: is also where you can find 12 years of reviews interviews and other top fives there in the show archives and while you're there go ahead and vote in the current film spotting poll we're just asking you what's darren aronofsky's best film the requiem for a dream and black swan director's new one mother opens next week and if you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts: The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting's for you. Find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast
0: app. Out in wide release this weekend, Home Again: Life for a single mom in LA takes an unexpected turn when she allows three young guys to move in with her. Well, I imagine it would. Reese Witherspoon stars in that, and it is out. And we're not going to go into an Abbott and Costello routine here. It is It, the Stephen King book adaptation. Previously a TV movie, as I understand it, that yes, I have not seen. Me either. Now coming to the big screen. In limited release, Columbus, a Golden Brick nominee here on Film Spotting, We highly recommend you see it if you have the chance. Gunshy, an aging rock star's supermodel wife is abducted by pirates while vacationing in Chile. Wait, it gets better. Antonio Banderas and Olga Kirilenko star. Wait, it gets better. Directed by Conair Simon West. There you go. <laughs> Next week, we will talk about Mother and share our top five Darren Aronofsky scenes. Send us your favorite via MP3, feedback at filmspotting.net or email, or leave us a short voicemail 312 264. 0744. Film
2: Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Deso and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show would not go. Our production assistant, that's Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. Our music this week is by EMA. It comes from the new album Exile in the Outer Ring. More information is at IWantToDestroy.com.
0: For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
3: Remember what Mr. Halloran said? It's just like pictures in a book, Andy. It isn't real.
0: So what'd you do this weekend? Long weekend. This
2: weekend, I did some homework. I watched Misery. I felt like Misery was the blind spot for me of King movies. And it w- it was and, fine. And maybe it was in terms of more prominence. highly regarded yeah, films exactly. that you haven't seen. Um I was I liked, I was a little disappointed in it. I mean, Bates Bates is fun. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't think it would scare you. No, it yeah. wasn't scared at all, but and I think it could have been, and I think the problem is the direction, which I know Reiner's done, you know, did stand by me, but this is a very different sort of King story. And he was just so insistent on like now you're going to be scared. Hmm. The, the Dutch angles, the extreme close-ups, it, it just, it really undercut a lot of what the movie was trying to do for I me. I haven't seen or it have been in a long do. time. Yeah, it was, it was bordered on camp, but not really going for that and just not scary. So, yeah. um, but I'm glad I saw it. I mean, it, there's other good stuff about it. So we did that. Um, what else? Yesterday was nice, celebrated my dad's 70th birthday. Wow. He's managing it quite well we went to second city the main stage show
0: doesn't look a day over 60
2: <laughs> i will tell him that he'll hear that loyal listener you know so yeah yeah we had fun uh my sister was in town from dc so we did a little party at my other sister's house with all the kids and then the grown-ups took off for um for second city which was good stuff some um some t- dancing Trumps. They wore <laughs> Trump faces at okay. one point uh, and did a little routine. It wasn't all political though, but yeah, it was, it was good. It's always good to check in on second city every, every once in a while. So yeah. how about you? Friday night.
0: I saw Jason Isbel at,
2: Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Right? At Chicago I, I knew theater. Like a whole bunch of people who were there. It was really? good. Great. Sounded I've seen like him it.
0: before. I think only once before and I went with my, Buddy Jim, who I've known since grade school, he's a guitar player in my band. And he lives in Gurnee, so we met up and had dinner and saw the show. And yeah, he was really good. And I'll I'll give him some credit too. I've said this before, talking about uh, musicians or when I go see them, and I haven't really given their latest album a shot. And mm-hmm. I, I was obsessed with Southeastern, and then the one that came out after that, Something More Than Free, I listened to nonstop. And something about the the new album just. I didn't give it a really thorough listen. And then I went and saw him live, and he played eight songs off the album and completely sold me on it. Like they all sounded so good live. I know, but he sounded so good live that, and just forcing me to really think about the songs and listen to them closely made me appreciate them. I've been listening to the album now nonstop. So it was really good. And then he had an opening band, a British group called Frank Turner and the Soothing Souls, I think they were called. Okay. And. I had never heard of them or, or didn't think I'd heard of them. And then about four tunes in, they played a song called Recovery that I bet if I played it for you, you'd recognize it was on the radio probably like three or four years ago from XRT would play mm-hmm. it anyway. Okay. It's really catchy. And actually, all their tunes were really catchy and they put on a great, a great live show. And I, I've been listening to some of their stuff, too, on Apple Music. So all in all, yeah, it was a good night anniversary. Eighteen years of oh,
2: it was anniversary
0: week of wow. wedding bliss of of marriage congratulations and um, so it was nice of you to go out to, to yeah. a concert with your friend for Thank your you. anniversary yeah it's it's marriage is all about compromise Josh and <laughs> occasionally you have to have you're, your you're own also life burying I guess in the lead here Adam no we did go out we went out Sunday I mean we uh, our anniversary thing was New Orleans in June yeah. so this was this was low key we just went to. We just went out to eat in Lockport at a place we'd heard about that was that was really good. And so pretty pretty mellow and then met up with some friends after that. I did see Close Encounters. I took Sophie oh, to Close Encounters didn't guys yesterday. Did you
2: see it at the seventy millimeter?
0: No. No, I'm thinking of um... we saw two thousand one. Okay. Yeah. And we saw Vertigo. Okay. We saw Interstellar seventy mil a couple of years ago, but no, uh no, it was you know, it's playing here nearby yeah, us, so right. I Sophie Holden remembered seeing it. He watched it with me 5 years ago when we did the Sacred Cow. Okay. And Sophie I don't think watched it with me. She had no recollection of it anyway and we we went to see it. She was a little confused but mm-hmm. I straightened her out on a few things. I mean all the stuff at the beginning with the the airplanes appearing right. in the desert and then the whole air traffic control thing. It's kind of disorienting to be sure. what's the what's going on here but Yeah, it's setting up the mystery. We got on board. I It's very weird Josh that First of all, of course, yeah, it's still great. Mm -hmm. It's still great. But I couldn't believe how much of it I didn't remember from five years ago. Like, Mm. I don't know what that says about me. But I there were so many scenes that I instantly remembered because, of course, I also saw them as a kid a bunch of times I remember the end of the film and I remember the mashed potatoes and I remember all these classic scenes but all these other scenes like the throwdown in the driveway when when Roy completely loses it and starts throwing things through the kitchen window yeah yeah I had no recollection of that from our watching neighbors are watching from our sacred cow there was a bunch of stuff like that somehow that it just I felt like I was watching it for the first time so I don't know that was a good experience for me to have I guess and and I loved it I I, (laughs) it goes without saying that Spielberg can direct a film I mean even just just seeing certain uh, the way he choreographs certain scenes or certain frames I'm thinking about something as as silly as there's the the scene where they're in the Gobi Desert and they're they're chasing well what is it then it's the boat they find the boat yeah. in the middle of the desert and he shows like a sand dune and all of a sudden three cars come over the sand dune in unison jump over this hill and it's just only Spielberg would take yeah, something like that and counts. make that cinematic, yeah. even though it's, it shouldn't be at all. Totally. So yeah. it's, it's full of moments like that.
2: Yeah, I think, well, when you say like iconic scenes, I think that's what happens. Those take up so much space in our memory and our consciousness that the other stuff does fade away. But that's what's fun about a revisit, because especially with Spielberg, all that stuff counts. Yeah, yeah. it does. Did you have any fantasy drafts this weekend? No, mine's coming up. It's this week. OK, yeah, we're kind of doing it last minute. Harris says you can bug him. Yeah. Oh, if you need to. I've, ar- and- <laughs> I've already uh, told the others in my league that just to, just to make them nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I you've said I've got, I you've said got said to someone them, on your I side. I haven't done any research, but that's all right, because I'll be uh, I can just
0: text. I'll be texting Chris Harris. <laughs> I did it a ton last night. You did? Oh, yeah. I hate to admit it. But oh. he told me he told me I could. It's kind of cheating. Yeah. In a way. And it's in nice because then you can blame him when things go wrong. <laughs> I know. I know. And I told him, too, We as we were texting that. The thing it is, of course, so frustrating about fantasy football is even when you think you have a pretty good team or even when you look at the other people in your league and they're making really stupid choices sometimes you still it doesn't matter you know and that's why i said it was like we were in our league and we were in like the eighth or ninth round and three defenses had already gone and a kicker had just gone and i'm like why don't we win this league every (laughs) year and he's like he's like it's it's poker man you know you got to have the cards totally 50 percent of it's the cards and you just can't do anything about it years to realize that yeah so i i used him though and uh we'll see how it goes film spotting is listener supported